there is going to have to be a really massive uprising in this country against the entire system because every time we're trying to tinker around the sides, the fact that we don't have a health care system in this country is something that is so horrific that I just keep thinking at some point there needs to be a real uprising against this system. When will it happen? I don't know. And so in the meantime, I think, yes, we have to fight for those crumbs, but what we want is the whole pie. That's Medea Benjamin, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Medea Benjamin on system change. The multiple problems facing the United States can no longer be swept under the rug. Modest so-called reforms are not sufficient given the magnitude of the crises we face from imperialism and militarism to war and the climate emergency. Our dollar-driven politics is corrupt. We need system change, not cosmetic change. Individually, we can do small things, but connecting with kindred spirits and organizations can make a difference in not only overcoming isolation, but can lead to changes in consciousness and positive initiatives. One such organization is Code Pink. Founded in 2002, it is a women-led grassroots nonprofit working to end U.S. wars, support peace and human rights, and redirect our tax dollars into health care, education, green jobs, and other life-affirming programs. Medea Benjamin, a co-founder of Code Pink, is our guest today. She's a renowned peace activist and social justice advocate. Newsday calls her one of America's most committed and most effective fighters for human rights. Author of many books, her latest is War in Ukraine. I talked with her in the studios of KGNU in Boulder, Colorado, in early April. Welcome to the program, Medea. Great to be with you, David. Henry Luce, the media mogul, founder of Time, Life, and Fortune, declared in an influential essay in 1941 that the American century was at hand. Well, it looks like that prediction might be coming up short by a couple of decades. Beset with multiple problems from a shredded safety net to trains literally going off the rails to grotesque inequality to the threat of more pandemics, to the existential dangers of climate chaos and terminal war, where does the U.S. stand today with its worldwide archipelago of military bases and a war budget of a trillion dollars? And with rising gun violence at home, the inability of the state to protect its own citizens, lots of guns abroad, lots of guns at home. Is there any connection between the two? It is important to recognize that we have created this country that puts so much of our funds into militarism. It's now almost a trillion dollars of our budget. It's more than half of the discretionary funds. It's more money than the federal government puts into things like health care and education and housing. And so, of course, we have a system that is reflective of that. You know, you have to look at the budget as a moral document 
And there we see what Martin Luther King would have called approaching spiritual death because we put so much more of our funds into uh, destruction than uh, programs of social uplift. And I think when we talk about the violence abroad and the violence overseas, we have to see that connection because uh, there are so many ways to make those connections. One is to say that when you glorify violence overseas and you glorify the military and you teach people to go overseas and carry weapons and use those weapons, what do you expect when those people come home? Uh, Every time there's a mass shooting in this country, I always wonder, was that somebody in the military? And uh, the majority of cases, it was. Somebody who is trained to kill, trained to use weapons, oftentimes given preference uh, in our police forces, uh, and uh, the the level of domestic violence among people who've been in the military is tremendous. And then all of the military surplus, in quotes, that then get put into our police stations. You know that program, David, the one called the um, 1033 program that takes these Pentagon tanks and grenades and assault weapons and gives them for free to police departments all over this country. And then it's sort of a lose it or, or use it or lose it situation, and, and they use them. So these are just some of the connections. But I think in general, if you look at the issue of where we spend our resources, if we're not putting money into helping people live their lives better, um, we are contributing to a state of uh, where people uh, are doing more uh, acts of violence, of crime, of of having a very difficult life um, that should be made easier by a government that takes care of the needs of its people. In President Eisenhower's January 17, 1961 farewell address, he warned the country about what he called the military-industrial complex. And this was coming from a five-star general you know, supreme commander of Allied troops in Europe in World War II. No pacifist he. Now, Ray McGovern, a former CIA official and now a critic of U.S. foreign policy, has updated Ike's formulation. He's coined the term MICIMAT, that stands for Military Industrial Congressional Intelligence Media Academia Think Tank, MICIMAC. Seymour Melman spoke of the permanent war economy. Now, in a talk you gave in Boulder, organized by the Rocky Mountain Peace Center, you compared military weapons manufacturers to, quote, an octopus with many tentacles. What do you mean by that? You see their influence in so many different ways. I spent a lot of time in Washington, D.C., and while we're knocking on the doors of our congresspeople begging to have meetings, the lobbyists for the military, well, let's call it the Mickey Mat, uh, they are there in full force. There's more lobbyists than there are Congress people. They don't have to go in the back door. They go in the front door. They go right to the Capitol where they have meetings. Uh, these are the companies that are also giving money directly to the campaigns of the Congress people, which in the eyes of anybody who really looks at this would be a, a, a form of bribery, uh, because then these are the very people that uh, allocate the money that goes into this military budget. You have the revolving door where people like the 
Secretary of Defense come from the Board of Raytheon, but you also have more and more people being elected to Congress who come directly from the military. Either they're veterans or they work for some of these companies, and they are uh, people who believe that the military has the answers to most of the problems that we see overseas, uh, even though the U.S. has lost the wars in Vietnam, in Iraq, in Afghanistan. They still are very much committed to so much of our budget going to the military and then uh, advocating for these wars overseas. Uh, and then you have the issue of these military companies that have decided that it was in their interest to produce pieces of their weapons in every single congressional district of this country. So as I travel around and I find in very liberal blue uh, districts, the biggest employer often tends to be a company that has some kind of connection to the military. Uh, so these are just some of the ways the tentacles are out there. And one more I should say, David, is all of the propaganda that the military produces with our dime, billions of dollars that are spent, whether it's in the sports arenas or on uh, holidays or religious settings or all kinds of ways that they enter into our lives, convincing us uh, that they are the greatest military ever and that we should keep handing over uh, so much money to them when they can't pass an audit uh, when they disappear, so much of our money goes into a black hole that goes into the military, and yet people continue to think that this is a, an extremely uh, trusted part of our government. And, and just uh, also, where does all the know-how from that come from? I mean, that's brilliant minds that are working on these things. And it, you see it in the universities around this country, particularly in the engineering departments, that so many of these departments have connections with the military. They're getting money from the research part of the military called DARPA. And as I travel around the country, I'm meeting with students, and sometimes uh, they are engineering students, and they lament the fact that their education is already uh, mixed up with the military and that they wonder if they're going to be able to get jobs when they graduate uh, in of fields where they're not going to be connected to the military. So also just think of all the um, the brilliant young minds that are put into how do they create better killing machines instead of things like how do we deal with the climate crisis. The doomsday clock of the bulletin of the atomic scientists is now at 90 seconds to midnight. It's the closest to global catastrophe it has ever been, a time of unprecedented danger. In a mid-March article, they write, The United States is in a developing military confrontation with China over Taiwan. Objectively, this prospective confrontation is absurd. China and the U.S. should be focused on improving life for their citizens, not on threatening the future of civilization. There's a lot of saber-rattling going on. Uh, back and forth around the Taiwan Strait and the South China Sea and the U.S.'s uh, projection of force in Northeast Asia. What do you see coming there? Well, let's remember it's the South China Sea. It's not the South America Sea. You know, why are we 
provoking so much conflict with a country like China that we need to work with to address the issues like the climate crisis. You know, here we are, in the case of Ukraine, involved in a war there that also has a part of it that is a proxy war between the U.S. and Russia. And at the same time, we're already looking towards China. And we have people in our military. We have people in both the Democratic and the Republican uh, members of Congress who are competing with each other to see who can be the toughest on China, taking regular trips to Taiwan allocating more and more weapons to be sold to Taiwan, and uh, the level of rhetoric about uh, coming war with China is just a, a horrific thing for the entire planet. And I think we, as this uh, people who live in this country, have to find ways to get to our quote, elected officials to say that these wars are not in our interests, that we have no interest in confronting China, and that while China is making friends around the world by uh, producing things that are useful for people and uh, infrastructure projects and uh, leading the world in production of uh, things like solar panels and windmills and high-speed rail, um, the United States is still stuck in a war economy. Uh, and that if we want to make friends around the world, uh, instead of all the saber rattling, we should be looking to the Chinese as examples of how do we use our economic prowess to be able to make people's lives better around the world instead of using our military might. The media are often cheerleaders for war. And just to give you one example, you know, the PBS NewsHour, maybe you've seen it. You know, it's a very sober, serious program. There's no yelling. People speak in complete sentences. You know, a very liberal type of uh, discourse. Well, recently, David Brooks, a New York Times columnist who's a regular on the, on the uh, NewsHour, was commenting on the Ukraine war. And he said, we're spending a few tens of billions of dollars We've already destroyed half the Russian military. Like, what could be a better investment than that? And then his partner on the program, Jonathan Capehart, who's a Washington Post editor, chimed in uh, criticizing Governor DeSantis's comment about Ukraine. Capehart said, There can't be any daylight between America's resolve and America's commitment to Ukraine and defending Ukraine. Democracy must win. Yeah, where do you go from there? In the war in Ukraine, it seems like the U.S. is more interested now in weakening Russia than they are in supporting Ukraine. If you were really interested in supporting Ukraine, our government would be focusing on how do you get to negotiations as quickly as possible. I don't know if you saw uh, one of our recent Code Pink interventions when Anthony Blinken was speaking in Congress, and I got up and said, you know, the American people don't want to keep funding an unwinnable war that could lead to World War III or a nuclear conflict. If you don't like the Chinese peace plan for Ukraine, where is your peace plan? That's what we have to focus on, not how can we destroy Russia, because, you know, you destroy Russia, even if you were successful in doing that, imagine what would come after. I mean, look at what the U.S. has done in its interventions and in trying to overthrow governments in places like Iraq and Libya and Afghanistan. Uh, you get something worse than what you came in 
you know, while we condemn the Russians for the invasion, what this invasion is doing is giving justification for uh, massive more money for the U.S. to spend on these weapons of mass destruction. And it's also causing Russia and and China, that we were just talking about, to spend a lot more money on their military and the Europeans to spend more money on their military. So anybody who wants to see a demilitarization of the entire world has to work for an end to the conflict in Ukraine. And the only way to end that is through negotiations. And moving back to uh, China, just to give listeners a sense of where they might be coming from, uh, President Xi criticized Western countries for their, I'm quoting now, all-around containment, encirclement, and suppression of China, led by the United States. He said it has, quote, brought unprecedented severe challenges to our country's development. So they have, uh, you know, a stake in this game, obviously. And, you know, their perspective is that they're being surrounded by U.S. military bases and are being threatened. Absolutely. I mean, that's why I say, you know, it's the South China Sea. Why is the U.S. Navy there? Why is the U.S. military surrounding them? Why are we now putting bases back into the Philippines? Uh, Why do we have bases in Japan and South Korea all over uh, that part of the world? You know, the fact that the U.S. has over 750 military bases around the world uh, makes the U.S. the largest military power around the world, uh, but is really part of the old dinosaur, uh, the way of looking at the world that we can control things by putting uh, our military footprint there. China is certainly threatened by uh, the U.S. presence in the region, is threatened by the war games that the U.S. continues to play out in a, a what would it look like to have a war with China. And this is, in some ways, the death wish of people in this Mickey Mat complex who are really contemplating what it would be like to have a war with China. So let's go back to this whole idea of how do we move our economy from one that is based on a war economy to one that is based on a peace economy? How do we build up a real movement in this country that demands that we stop putting this massive amount of money into having 750 military bases around the world? How do we rein in that military industrial complex? You know, that's part of what Code Pink has been doing for years and years in programs that we have like Divest from the War Machine, where we go to cities and push for divestment. We go to universities and push for divestment from the big military contractors. And we also go to members of Congress and we ask them to take a pledge that they won't take money from the five biggest weapons companies. Uh, Those are things that we can do on the grassroots level to try to build our way up to having this kind of effective pressure uh, to take money out of the military and put it back into people's needs. And what are some techniques of getting beyond the choir in this quest to uh, build a movement to roll back militarism and U.S. imperialism? You know, how do you talk to people who are diametrically opposed to everything you stand for? Well, at this point, it's not even so much diametrically opposed to everything we stand for. It's how do we get people who agree with us on so many issues to recognize that the putting a trillion dollars into the military is actually affecting their ability to get 
a universal health care system, for example, or to get the cancellation of student debt, and we should go further than that, which is free college education for anybody who needs it and wants it. How do we convince people in the environmental movement that they must see the direct connections between militarism and war and destruction of the environment? How do we bring these movements together? And that's something that uh, those of us in the peace movement have been trying to do over the years and reaching out to these different movements, being allies, coming out for them when they're doing demonstrations, when they have bills in Congress. But it's been, uh, you know, it's effective in some ways. If you look at things like the Poor People's Campaign, which is a group that has recognized since the beginning taking Martin Luther King's opposition to poverty, militarism, and racism, and adding the issues of the environment into there, that's a movement that integrates a lot of these issues. And we have to do that and build that up across these different sectors. So yes, it would be interesting and important on specific issues like Ukraine to reach out to people who are opposed to us in many other issues, but agree with us that we shouldn't continue the blank check and there should be negotiations. But in the meantime, we have a lot of work to do to build up, even in the progressive movement, the links, the understanding, and get them on board to be pressuring with us at times like this with the Ukraine war to be getting their members, the massive amounts of people who work in the environmental movement, to understand that they have to join us Uh, in calls for peace talks. In terms of international law and concern for human rights, uh, the U.S. applies it selectively to designated enemy states such as Russia, China, Cuba, Syria, Venezuela, Iran, and North Korea. But U.S. allies such as Israel, India, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Morocco, the UAE, they're exempt from any kind of scrutiny. They're given a free pass. No sanctions, no public condemnations. Why? Because the U.S. is so hypocritical that it applies this issue of human rights and democracy in a kind of weaponized way uh, to divide the world between good and evil. And the good are people who, uh, or governments that are allies of the United States, and the evil are ones that want to find a different path. And so within that good, we have the uh, the, the the Saudis, um, good in the sense that uh, until very recently, they were close allies of the United States, and so the U.S. would supply them with weapons, even though they were using those weapons to bomb the poorest country in the Arab world, which is Yemen. Uh, and uh, you have the uh, so many examples, as you put out, of uh, the hypocrisy of the United States. And this comes in when we want to condemn Russia for its illegal invasion of Ukraine, for its war crimes that it's committing. And yet so many countries and people around the world say, well, yeah, maybe that's true. But who is the United States to be leading this charge when the U.S. did uh, something similar in its invasions of Iraq, its invasions of Libya, uh, the lack of accountability for uh, U.S. war crimes, the 
the U.S. wanting to pretend that it believes in international law, but it only does it when it's to the U.S. advantage. So it's very hard these days for people around the world to see the U.S. as any kind of leader when it comes to human rights and democracy. Uh, when President Biden has uh, these gatherings to bring the democratic countries of the world together, Many people around the world just laugh at that and say what it means is the U.S. bringing its allies together, not the democratic world together. And Washington likes to hide behind this phrase, the rules-based global order. You know, chalk up another one for Orwell with that. Um, Where the U.S. makes the rules and gives the orders. (laughs) Speaking of uh, Orwell, in his classic 1946 essay, Politics and the English Language, he wrote, in our time, political speech and writing are largely the defense of the indefensible. It's a lexical minefield out there. What kind of techniques would you recommend to decode propaganda and to peel away the layers of deceit and distortion that so much of the media are enveloped in? Well, I guess I would turn that around and ask you, because you're a part of this media and do such a good job by giving people alternatives. Uh, And that's what I think we really have to build up at this time, which is tell people to turn off their not uh, tell them to turn on to free speech TV and turn off uh, uh, the uh, mainstream cable news shows to recognize, especially at a time when we're uh, in this war in Ukraine and we're saber rattling around China uh, to um, not believe what they hear in the mainstream media and to seek out these alternatives Uh, to be very careful about uh, what you decide to believe uh, and not, and to uh, really recognize that the terms democracy, the terms of uh, human rights, these issues of defending democracy versus authoritarianism, you know, that, that they are being weaponized now and Uh, People have to look beyond that and seek alternative sources of information like your program. And speaking of uh, Saudi Arabia, China recently brokered a deal between uh, Iran and the kingdom. Uh, They had broken off diplomatic relations uh, seven years ago. That was quite an interesting geopolitical development of China inserting itself in the Middle East between these two different countries. It's absolutely astounding because China has not been known for playing this kind of role. It's known as this economic powerhouse that is now the number one trading partner with most countries around the world. But it's really not tried to get involved in a lot of these uh, conflicts far from their borders. And so when you see them brokering this extraordinary deal of these two arch enemies that has been have been at each other at each other's throats, um, it is uh, a uh, something that has made many countries around the world stand up and say, "Aha! You know, maybe China could play a positive role in trying to mediate some of the global conflicts because." Countries around the world have good relationships with China because of the uh, economic developments that China is part of, and that gives China a lot of leverage. When you look at now, uh, for example, with Russia and Ukraine, China has leverage with both countries because it has had strong economic ties with both of those countries. So I think this Saudi-Iran deal is a game-changer. 
and it's a game changer in the Middle East, uh, and it could be a game changer for the role that China might play in the future. And China's BRI Belt and Road Initiative is not just in West Asia, but Latin America, Africa, literally worldwide investment uh, by China. Absolutely. And then you have the economic entities like the one known as BRICS, which is uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, that is extremely powerful. And now so many other countries want to join in that, and they're having their own bank and their own lending institutions. And more of these uh, economic entities that are starting to get around the dollar uh, are being strengthened with the U.S. abusing its its role as the currency of international finance, abusing its role as using economic sanctions to crush other countries. And now I think the world is shifting tremendously, and we are going to find in the years to come that there are going to be a, a, a multipolar world and a, and a world that is not dependent on the dollar. You're listening to Medea Benjamin on System Change. This is Independent Alternative Radio. To get copies of this program, call us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. This year marks the 75th anniversary of the U.N. Declaration of Human Rights, in which Eleanor Roosevelt played an instrumental role in drafting that document. Well, yes, and the U.S. has in the past played roles of trying to uh, mediate in some conflicts. We see the U.S. involvement in the agreements in Northern Ireland that stopped the fighting there. It's that in recent times, the U.S. has decided that it's going to, instead of uh, ever trying to play this role of of mediator uh, of conflicts, it's going to play this role of choosing a side. That side is then the side that we nominate as the good side. And so in, in recent years, the U.S. has lost the ability to play that kind of a role. And uh, wouldn't it be nice if we were able to get back to something like that? It's hard now to see the U.S. playing a role of peacemaker and mediator because we have a State Department that is so much an appendage of the Pentagon. You have somebody like Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, that is somebody who came out of a lobbying firm that was getting contracts for the Defense Department, that has really shown himself to be somebody who is very much of the mindset that the U.S. can continue on this path of trying to be the hegemonic nation instead of playing the role that he's supposed to play, which is a role of diplomats. And diplomats talk to your adversaries. So he should be talking to the adversaries on a regular basis. And instead, in the case of Ukraine, for example, he has been traveling around the world trying to get countries to send more weapons to Ukraine instead of talking to 
countries around the world about how are we going to solve this conflict. When you see the number of times that he's met with his counterpart in Russia, Lavrov, since the war began, it is one time that there was a face-to-face meeting that was on the sidelines of the G20 meeting and lasted for all of 10 minutes. So it would be nice if we had a State Department that really put its efforts into peacemaking. You might recall when Dennis Kucinich was a congressman how he wanted to have a a Department of Peace because the State Department does not play that role. China is pushing back. You know, they're no longer the uh, easy target pushover that they had been for several centuries of being invaded and occupied by foreign powers. And in the case of uh, Blinken, there was one high-ranking Chinese diplomat who said, you have no right to lecture us about anything. The Chinese came back very strongly, and I think that is a mark of the new era that we're in. The Israelis' settlement project has continued apace. The colonization is increasing. Oppression of Palestinians by Israelis has three major human rights organizations, Beth Salem, which is an Israeli group, Human Rights Watch, and Amnesty International, have all said that Israel is practicing apartheid. Obviously, with this new uh, right-wing government getting worse and worse and becoming so embarrassing for the United States to be still giving almost $4 billion of our tax dollars every year to a government that is now have people inside the government that talk about wiping out entire villages. Of course, this is how the state of Israel was founded. But the fact that we don't even have people within the Congress, uh, except for a handful of them, that are willing to stand up and even talking about conditioning some of that aid on uh, Israeli practices. I mean, we would like to see the U.S. entirely cut the $4 billion that we're giving to Israel every year because it's being used in such an oppressive way. But even to broach the issue of how do you cut back on the U.S. money is a difficult thing to do in Congress. And that gets us back to the corruption of Congress, the money in Congress, the role of APAC, which is the strongest foreign policy lobby group in our country. And you see that people who, even when they are mentioning that they're going to run for Congress, are immediately visited by people from APAC to demand from them uh, some kind of allegiance to the government of Israel. So while public opinion in the United States is changing very much about Israel, we still don't see that reflected in the policies of our Congress or the policies of the White House. Well, we also see lobbies at work in terms of Cuba, uh, guns, the NRA, the military-industrial complex uh, that you mentioned as well. They do have an influence on policy. Well, if you just take Cuba, you look at this small group of Cuban-Americans who have created a lobby that they said is actually modeled after APAC. Uh, They looked at how effective APAC was, and they have created a lobby group that is its people from the diaspora in Cuba, mostly living in southern Florida, that have a stranglehold, and they have Bob Menendez from the Democratic Senate, and they have Marco Rubio from the Republican side, who really control the policies. And they control it in such a way that is devastating for the Cuban people. It's hard to imagine that these Cuban Americans really have any family left, because if they did, uh, they would not be 
carrying out policies that so hurt the people who are living on the island. And this is true of U.S. sanctions against small countries in which it's a form of collective punishment, and it really is a kind of economic warfare. In the case of Cuba, where I travel quite often, I've never seen conditions so bad since the time of the fall of the Soviet Union because after COVID, the tourism industry has been devastated, and that was an important source of income for the island, and because the Biden administration has followed the path of Donald Trump instead of going back to the path of Obama, which was one of opening up relations. And you see these terrible sanctions, as well as Cuba being on the state sponsor of terrorism list that is absolutely ridiculous because Cuba has been a victim of terrorism rather than a sponsor of terrorism. But this is something that Donald Trump did in his last days of office. And Biden could have changed it with the stroke of a pen the week he came into office and instead has kept Cuba on that list, which means Cuba has a horrible time trying to have any kind of financial transactions because the banks don't want to work with them. It is the number one problem that Cuba faces right now, and that's why it's so important, a campaign that many groups are doing, including Code Pink, to try to take Cuba off the terrorist list. Latin America, our neighbor to the south, or as Secretary of War Henry Stimson said in 1945, He described the hemisphere as, quote, our little region over here, which has never bothered anybody. Well, 2023 marks the 200th anniversary of the Monroe Doctrine. And since then, Latin America has endured U.S. invasions, occupations, coups, assassinations, embargoes, and sanctions. And among Latin American countries, as you alluded to, Cuba ranks very high on that list of being targeted by the U.S. 61 years and counting of the U.S. blockade of Cuba can only be described as insane. It serves no U.S. geopolitical interest. It be solely attributed to the power of this uh, small lobby that you that you refer to. It doesn't even serve a capitalist interest. I bet the business class would love to get into Cuba and have partnerships in some of those luxury hotels that Spain and Canada and maybe some other countries have engaged with the Cuban government with. The diasporas in some of these countries, like the Venezuelan Americans, like the Cuban Americans, like the Colombian Americans, they tend to be more conservative people who came to this country because they uh, disliked changes in their countries that were oftentimes changes that were uh, governments in power that were good for the people. And yet we see in Latin America today a vibrant, vibrant continent in which there are countries that are coming to power that are progressive, that are pushed forward by the civil society, and that are uh, representing in many ways the desire to reflect the needs of their people and not the needs of their neighbor to the north. This is, of course, something that the U.S. has been 
trying to fight against for many, many years, but is in a position now where Latin America is strong enough to create their own institutions like CELAC, which is an institution that is gaining power and will possibly be replacing the Organization of American States that is very much dominated by the United States and by conservative interests. So we see a changing Latin America, and I think it's a very positive thing. But what does it mean to be a leftist in Latin America today? We're not talking about, you know, Che Guevara-type-led guerrilla movements. It's quite different. Well, there are very strong civil society groups in Latin America. There's very strong women's groups that are still fighting in some countries, uh, very conservative Catholic mores that include a, a ban on abortions. There are countries in Central America where women in, are in prison because they have had miscarriages. So the strong women's groups that are also fighting domestic violence issues. There are strong groups that are fighting the dominance of corporations like the mining companies, companies that are taking away the access of communities to their water rights. There are uh, strong groups that are uh, fighting for land reform, access to government resources. Uh, you see groups like the MST, the Landless Movement in Brazil, that's an extremely strong movement that helped to propel President Lula back into power. But, you know, these movements are very interesting because uh, while they push forward progressive leaders, uh, they also try to maintain their independence. Uh, and you see in Colombia right now the extraordinary uh, new government that's in place, and this was the strongest ally of the United States where the U.S. has its military bases, and coming to power of a progressive government there, uh, not only the president, Petro, but the vice president, Francia Marquez, who is somebody from the Afro-Colombian community who was a fighting against the mines, a water protector, uh, somebody involved in negotiations with the rebel groups. I mean, it is a tremendous shot in the arm for the entire Afro community throughout Latin America to have somebody like her as vice president. So these are major changes that we're seeing in Latin America that inspire uh, the grassroots in those countries. Would you include in that group of uh, progressive leaders Andres Manuel Lopez uh, Obrador, also usually known by his initials, AMLO? I think AMLO is quite extraordinary. And while there are people who criticize the domestic policies and, of course, the policies that he has had around migration in terms of going along with the United States and trying to keep migrants from crossing into the U.S. border to get the asylum that they rightfully deserve, in terms of foreign policy, he has been quite extraordinary. I mean, he has been a leader in pushing for the strengthening of uh, CELAC as an organization that represents Latin America, not the United States. Uh, he has been somebody who's come out with issues like supporting Julian Assange and has hosted the brother and the father of Julian Assange in Mexico City. He is somebody that has come out very strongly against the U.S. sanctions on Cuba and says that he wants to create a campaign to get Cuba off of that terrorist list. And so in foreign policy issues, I think he's quite extraordinary. He's also come out and said that he wants to be involved in trying to find a solution to the war in Ukraine and has put forward other leaders to be part of a team. 
Uh, one other thing about the head who is known with the initials AMLO is that he talks to his people every single day. He holds press conferences that last at least two hours, Monday through Friday, and takes any question, not like the United States where it's predetermined what who's going to ask a question to President Biden and what the question will be. These are really open forums. Hundreds of thousands of people listen to these every single day. When I ever have time, I like to tune into them because it's just beautiful. It's just kind of free-flowing conversation that happens with your leader for two hours a day. Imagine if Joe Biden would do that all the times he'd put his foot in his mouth. <laughs> but in uh, the case of Mexico, and there is now a right-wing campaign in the United States against him. And one of the things they say against him is that he's such a demagogue. He talks for over two hours a day to his people. I thought that was quite amusing. But I think he is an extraordinary leader in a country that has so much pressure from the United States. And how about uh, Alberto Fernandez in Argentina and Gabriel Boric in uh, Chile? You know, well, these are leaders that aren't like rah-rah leftist leaders, but they are progressives, and they are part of a progressive movement in Latin America. And I think that we should see that Latin America today has many different levels of, you know, who, which are countries that are straightforward socialist countries like Cuba, and which are countries that would consider themselves more along the progressive line and don't want to be dominated by the United States. And I think that's something that unites a lot of countries in Latin America today. And when you look back at that summit of the Americas that Biden had in Los Angeles last year and see that so many countries stood up and said, if you're not inviting all of Latin America, we're not going to come either. And that's what the president of Mexico started. And then other countries started saying, we're not going to come or use their ability to come, like the head of Argentina came, and he used his time here to say, you have to stop interfering in the affairs of Latin America in a negative way. You have to stop these sanctions that are so harmful. And the hypocrisy of the United States of saying, we want to get to the root causes of migration and yet continue to have a stranglehold on countries like Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela that make it so difficult for people to feed their families and are indeed part of the root causes that cause so many of them to leave their countries. So these were things that the governments of Latin America have been saying to the U.S., and it's an important role that they're playing, even if they're not socialist governments. Talk about uh, Shomar Castro the, of Honduras, the first uh, woman president of that uh, Central American country, and by the way, the wife of Manuel Zelaya, who was uh, overthrown in a coup. He was democratically elected, overthrown in a coup in 2009. How is she doing in, in Honduras? Well, it's very difficult because when there's a change of government at the top level, it doesn't mean there's a change in the national assemblies. Oftentimes, as in the case of Honduras, it's still in the hands of very conservative people who try to trip her up all along the way and uh, make it very difficult to make the kind of transformations that people like Xiomara Castro would like to see. So it is very exciting to have people like her come to power. Uh, it is a vindication of the coup against Mel Zelaya. And 
It is so important for the people in Honduras who are fighting very, very difficult fights for their land rights, for their water rights, and fighting the terrible violence that exists in their communities. So it is inspiring to have a progressive coming to power, but we shouldn't think that is enough to make transformations in countries that are still controlled, not only in the national assemblies by conservatives, but also they have the economic power. And it's very, very difficult to wrest away uh, that power from those elites who have had it for so long. Talking about uh, change and how it happens. I mean, some people advocate for tinkering around the edges, incremental change, you know, one step forward, two steps back, three steps forward, etc., versus fundamental structural change. No more crumbs. We want the bakery. You know, in this country, I'm starting to think there is going to have to be a really massive uprising in this country against the entire system because every time we're trying to tinker around the sides, I mean, we get so little. I mean, look at these poor students that get saddled with a debt after they do their part to learn and try to contribute to society by having more knowledge. And then when government of Biden wants to do a little crumb, which is a 10000 and in some cases $20,000 re- relief, there is so much backlash. You wonder, you know, can we even get the crumbs these days? The fact that we don't have a health care system in this country is something that is so horrific that I just keep thinking at some point there needs to be a real uprising against this system. When will it happen? I don't know. And so in the meantime, I think, yes, we have to fight for those crumbs because real people's lives are in danger and those crumbs can make the difference between life and death for people. I mean, Obamacare, let's face it, did give some health care to people who didn't have it. It's certainly not good enough. So we fight for the crumbs in the meantime, but what we want is the whole pie. It's interesting to see the resistance in France and particularly these massive demonstrations, not just one Saturday or Sunday afternoon, but day after day, resistance to Macron and his uh, desire to increase the retirement age from 62 to 64. Don't you wish that we would have that kind of reaction here in this country where people would not do a Saturday march where we uh, walk around in circles in Washington, D.C. when all of the Congress and the White House are, are closed up, but we actually did that kind of constant, constant all the time. That's what we need. And I think that's, you know, what the Occupy movement was about. And we need that kind of thing to come back again. I always just wonder, you know, wouldn't it be beautiful If we did an Occupy movement in Washington, D.C., whether it was around an issue of the student debt or the health care for all, and we just don't leave until we get it. And we could easily surround our Congress, and obviously in a very peaceful way, not the way people did it on January 6th. But I think that's the kind of thing that we need, and the French are such an inspiration. Talk about uh, combating despair and cynicism. And how, how, do you, how do you do that? And I just want to quote that great social philosopher, you may know her, Lily Tomlin. Uh, she said, no matter how cynical you become, it's never enough to keep up. <laughs> <laughs> I think countering despair is activism. And every time I get... Uh, 
a little too cynical and uh, feeling like maybe none of this is uh, the activism is worth it, I actually push myself to get out again. And then I get excited, whether it's going out to a protest, whether it's protesting myself in the halls of Congress, or whether it's going out like I am now on a speaking tour around uh, the issue of Ukraine with my new book. You know, COVID was such a horrible time when so many of us were cloistered away and uh, didn't have that kind of social activity. And we are social animals. So getting out and being with each other again, having these in-depth conversations, uh, talking about new strategies that we can use, it really is activism that puts you in contact uh, with other people who are hopeful, who uh, do believe that we are agents of change, that we can make things better. And um, certainly it's that kind of community that uh, gives us this impetus to keep going, and we have to surround ourselves uh, with people who are hopeful. The Canadian artist, poet, singer Leonard Cohen sings in the anthem, there's a crack, a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Where do you see those cracks, those openings today? Well, uh, the last time I was in a hearing in Congress, I heard this conservative Republican uh, questioning very deeply about how long we're going to continue in this fight in Ukraine uh, and uh, where is this leading. And I talked to him afterwards and I said, why were you doing this kind of hard questioning? And he said, I hate war. And he told me that there are many people in his committee that have stocks in the weapons companies and that this is a big racket. And I looked him up and indeed he's in one of the reddest districts in Tennessee. And uh, here is a guy telling me that he hates war. And it reminded me of another uh, right-wing Republican uh, who during the Iraq war was the guy who Canned the uh, who coined the uh, phrase "freedom fries" because the French wouldn't go with us into the war in Iraq, and so he said, "We can't have French fries in the cafeteria anymore. We have to have freedom fries." Uh, and he, after going to the uh, funerals of the young men in his district that uh, died in the Iraq War, changed his mind and became one of our greatest allies uh, in the fight against the war in Iraq. So those are certainly some cracks, and there's lots of them out there, and we have to look for them and cultivate them. Langston Hughes, the great African-American poet, wrote a poem called Dreams. Hold fast to dreams, for if dreams die, life is a broken-winged bird that cannot fly. Hold fast to dreams, for when dreams go, life is a barren field, frozen with snow. What are your dreams? Who and what inspires you? Well, I am very inspired by people who uh, choose different lifestyles, who are trying to build the kind of communities that we want to live in, uh, to reorganize those communities so that we're not dependent on cars, we're not dependent on uh, living in in isolated suburbs, uh, that we can show people that life can be really exciting by having uh, communities where uh, everything we need is in a 15-minute a, a walking radius, um, redesigning the way we 
lives our, our lives so that we're not in these isolated nuclear families. Uh, you know, I come from the 1970s when we had communes, and I think there's something beautiful about living in community and I am inspired by young people who are going back to that. I try to live in much as much in community as I can. Uh, and I'm inspired certainly by uh, the people that I meet all around the world who are facing such desperate situations and yet uh, are dedicating their lives to making the lives of their communities better. So there's always great inspirational people that we can look towards. They don't have to be uh, the leaders of a country. Uh, they don't even have to be the leaders of, the mo- of a movement. I think they have to be people who are part of a movement and are giving their lives to making not only their own lives better, but the lives of the people in their community. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you, David. Good talking to you. You were just listening to Medea Benjamin on System Change. Medea Benjamin, a co-founder of Code Pink, is a renowned peace activist and social justice advocate. Author of many books, her latest is War in Ukraine. This program is produced by Alternative Radio, an independent nonprofit in our 37th year. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To get copies of today's program, Medea Benjamin on System Change, and for her book, War in Ukraine, call us 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online, our website, alternativeradio.org. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are free of charge. Give us a call, 1-800-444-1977. Special thanks to KGNU. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. We go out with Joni Mitchell, Woodstock. <laughs>